It's August 21st, 2013, and welcome to another edition of Bite Marks Cafe, where we serve you the first bite of today's technology. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ran Ozawa, and we cover the geek beat here on Hawaii Public Radio. First, we'll look at the latest tech news and happenings in Hawaii and beyond. And joining us today is Tate Kanashige from the Girl Scouts of Hawaii to tell us about the International Space Station Project. Finally, we'll learn about how scientists are using technology to understand the habits and behavior of monk seals. Have your questions and suggestions ready to call in or tweet, but first, the headlines. Well, single-use plastic bags are banned on Kauai, Maui, and the Big Island, and Honolulu's law will take effect on July in 2015. But that may not be soon enough for the sea turtles, as a new study finds they are swallowing more plastic bags and other debris than ever before. The researchers looked at the global research data from the past 25 years, including data from Hawaiian waters, and found some turtle species are consuming twice as much potentially fatal plastic today than they did back then, raising concerns about their long-term prospects. According to the study, published this month in the journal Conservation Biology, plastic is especially popular among young turtles in the open ocean, further threatening the population of endangered green and leatherback turtles. On the other hand, beaching turtles in areas with high concentrations of marine debris, like New York City, showed little evidence of plastic ingestion. Since turtles near undeveloped areas had eaten debris, it appears that some turtles are more familiar with the dangers of plastic and avoid it. Plastic bags can look like jellyfish underwater, and the problem is growing as plastics and other debris continue to form giant floating garbage patches in the North Pacific. Since 80% of the debris comes from the land-based sources, the uh, scientists say that to reduce this risk, man-made debris must be managed at a global level from the manufacturers through to the consumers before debris reaches the ocean. And you know, this is, uh, it seems obvious, but of course, you know, there needs to be some, uh, in our case, uh, laws put in place, and, and all the neighbor islands have, have already kind of put in their law. And in the case of Oahu, since uh, a lot of the island retailers already have an inventory of plastic bags, I think they gave them a little bit of a grace period to, to kind of get rid of those. Well, two years is quite a long time. Yeah. The law was actually passed last year, and even the Surfrider Foundation kind of pointed out that they thought, oh, good. It start, but there are a lot of loopholes. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it's clear that uh, this debris is a threat. We covered recently a story about how more large fish are eating it and how, therefore, small particles probably are making its way into the human diet. Uh, in terms of the observation that turtles that uh, live in areas with high debris don't eat it as much, they said it could be because turtles are more familiar with human activity and human waste, um, but it could also be that when they're in the open ocean, they have their, you know, there's much less food available, they're hunting harder for it, mm-hmm. so they might make the call to eat something that looks like a jellyfish that isn't if they're very hungry. Yeah, in a, just a side note, I was, uh, I usually run Ala Moana, and there's a lot of uh, turtles around Ala Moana Beach, and uh, one of the fishermen over there was reeling something in, and it was a turtle. And luckily, it broke off and you know mm-hmm. sort of got uh, got away. But I was still kind of concerned that he was probably you know swimming away with a hook still mm-hmm. stuck in him. The State Department of Land and Natural Resources announced yesterday that it's accelerating a planned study of shark movements around the Hawaiian Islands after an unprecedented spike in the number of shark attacks on swimmers and surfers in the last 18 months. So far this year, there have been eight incidents, including four in just the last month. There were 10 incidents in all of 2012, and that represented a considerable jump in frequency over the three incidents per year that were recorded in each of the prior three years. Department Chairperson William Isla said in a statement, these appear to be random events, including sharks of different species and different sizes. There's nothing we can yet discern that connects the, the, the incidences or provides 
any sort of explanation. To gain some insight into these shark incidents, the uh, Department of Land and Natural Resources has given the go-ahead for a University of Hawaii study of tiger shark movements around Maui, which Isla said will help government officials decide whether and which marine area management options should be considered. The department had asked UH to propose such a study at a special meeting last year that was called in response to the high number of incidents back then. The research will begin next month with an estimated cost of $186,000 over the next two years. The DLNR notes that similar spikes have been observed in other places around the world and that human activity is often thought to be a major factor in the observed changes in shark behavior. The department has also published suggestions for reducing the chances of being bit. Well, you know, it it does seem like uh, there has been uh, a definite spike in occurrences, uh, especially occurrences where, you know, limbs are being bitten off. And uh, I think there is probably a a good need for understanding, you know, what exactly is happening up there. Right. And, you know, if it's 3, 3, 3, and then 10, and then we're already close to that and it's the year's not over. In fact, Isla points out that there's usually an increase within a year of shark incidents between October and December. So we're just sort of heading into, into the, that period. Uh. And so the, certainly uh, there could be more. And in fact, that's something that was observed in traditional Hawaiian histories as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but some of the tips are pretty good. You know, uh, don't go out alone. Stay near where someone can help you. Avoid dawn, dusk, or of course night. And if you have any cuts or any anything bleeding, that would certainly be a risk as well. Nope. I like that, that he said, you know, but we should remember the sharks are an important part of the ecosystem. Uh, the ocean is their home, and we are the visitors. Now, so. what about the idea of uh, wearing anything that's sparkly or shiny? Right. High-contrast clothes, jewelry uh, could draw them. And they even say that, you know, if you bring your dog or a pet, but probably a dog, to the beach and they splash around in a certain uh, way, they seem to feel that that kind of splashing also draws Well, sharks. you know, that may be a way of, of protecting yourself. So, you know, <laughs> let, <laughs> let you the just, shark eat your dog and swim away. Okay, well, next up, the Subaru Telescope atop Mauna Kea has recently upgraded with what is, uh, with uh, what researchers are describing as the world's most powerful astronomical camera. And this week, scientists have released large, sharp new images of the Andromeda galaxy captured with the new instrument. The images seen as a demonstration of the Hyper Supreme Cam, or HSC, a wide-field camera developed by astronomers at Princeton University with colleagues in Japan and Taiwan. Its field of view allowed the entire Andromeda galaxy, some measuring some 6,000 light years across, to be captured in a single shot. Using the HSC, astronomers will be able to conduct a cosmic census of hundreds of millions of galaxies across a wide swath of sky. The collected images will lead to discoveries of newly formed galaxies, support research into dark matter and dark energy, and help scientists understand the evolutionary history of the expanding universe. The Subaru Telescope is already a powerful stargazing instrument with a large 8-meter mirror. The new camera contains 116 CCD image sensors and an array of seven corrective lenses that can provide consistent image sharpness across the entire picture. Well, the new camera will enhance the telescope's ability to make nearly invisible and distant faint objects visible. The Andromeda Galaxy images, although captured as part of a test, are already good enough to improve current measurements of every galaxy and star within. Princeton University researcher Paul Price said in a statement, from my first involvement in this project, I've been, uh, been amazed at its boldness. We've, uh, we can take what has long been one of the best astronomical cameras in the world and make it 10 times better again. And, you know, I was uh, looking at some of these images, and they are quite spectacular. Mm-hmm. And, you know, just looking at, you know, looking at them on the web, I mean, of course, you're limited by your, 
uh, screen resolution. Yeah. But you know, if you can print up a, a huge poster of this, uh, it'd be quite amazing. And and I was looking at some pictures, uh, you know, with uh, from the the Japan um, Astronomical Organization and. Uh, they showed some relative sizes of the uh, camera to a person, and mm. it's, it's larger than Very. a person, so it's a huge camera. Yeah, in fact, it weighs three tons. Uh, a lot of the optics was built by Canon, so the photo nerd in me was ex- interested in that. It's essentially an 870-megapixel camera, mm. weighs three tons, as I mentioned. The CCD elements have to operate at, a, at minus 100 degrees centigrade. That's how they remove any residual signal to be able to get the clearest possible picture. But because the field is so wide, the Sky Survey, which when they proposed doing the survey uh, with existing instruments some time ago. They said it would take about 16 years. They say that same survey will now take about two years mm-hmm, with mm-hmm. this new camera. So, so, so rather impressive. than taking like multiple pictures and, and sort of splicing them all together, I mean, they can, they can basically take one large shot. Yeah, and in fact, uh, they were pointing out how difficult it was to build this wider aperture uh, instrument into the existing infrastructure at the observatory. Mm-hmm. So that, I mean, if they could have built a brand new one, I'm sure they could have done something even wider, but this was quite a feat just to stay within that space. Mm-hmm. As the popularity of hybrid and electric vehicles grow, automotive training programs need to adapt as well. Instructors from Honolulu Community College, Kauai Community College, and Leeward Community College recently participated in a four-day workshop to do just that. Hawaii saw the highest per capita sales of electric vehicles in the country in 2011, with an estimated 2,500 EVs expected to be on Hawaii roads by the end of this year. Those cars will need to be serviced, and through this program, more local students will be ready to get to work. Well, the training was made available through the C3T Hawaii, uh, the Community College Career Training Grant Program of the Federal Department of Labor and the UH Community College System. Um, They received $24.6 million through the program. The grant is aimed at the curriculum development and academic and career coaching with an emphasis on expanding certificate and degree programs in the areas of agriculture, energy, and health services. The workshop was taught by Jack Rosebro of Los Angeles-based Perfect Sky. Uh, that company is a hybrid and advanced technology training company. Participants were able to study and work hands-on with electric drivetrains with real-world EVs like the Nissan Leaf. Rosebro said in a statement, These instructors learned theory and application to be problem solvers and diagnostic specialists. The ability to be a self-learner and adapt to the changes of the auto industry will enable these instructors to be successful when transferring this knowledge to their students. Well, you know, uh, back in the olden days when uh, I went to high school, you know, there were like uh, auto, shop. auto shops and auto shops, you know, people <laughs> usually refer to them as kind of like grease monkeys. But now I think you have to have like a electrical engineering degree to uh, take a look at some well, of these cars. I mean, they're pretty complex. Yeah, my first car was a 77 Nova and you could almost climb into the hood to work on the mm-hmm, car. And mm-hmm. now they seem to be hermetically sealed and you'd have to have to have special tools. So it's good that our schools are addressing that. I should mention, although there were those three community colleges, Hawaii Community College on the Big Island also has an automotive, automotive mechanics technology program. But it's certainly been a very busy year for electric vehicles. Definitely. And, you know, uh, the community colleges have been playing an active role in preparing students for sort of vocations. And obviously, um, you know, everybody's got a car and everything's kind of moving in that direction. So having the skills to maintain it is going to be an important one. Absolutely. Finally, a couple of quick items uh, on the tech calendar this week. This weekend brings Flash Camp, organized by the Hawaii Flash Users Group, focused on developing on the Flash platform. A number of speakers will be presenting live online, and the event will be streamed live on the web. 
but you can participate and the network uh, in person and network in person over at the Box Jelly in Kakaako. And for more information, you can visit flashcamphawaii.com. And Monday brings the monthly Tech Pauhana Meetup in Kona. This month's focus will be on college-level STEM education on Hawaii Island, featuring UH Hilo Chancellor Don Strainey. The meetup will take place at 5 p.m. at the Nelha Gateway Center on August 26th. For more information on that event, you can visit energyfuturehawaii.com. Org. And now joining us here in the studio is Tate Kanashige from the Girl Scouts of Hawaii to tell us about their second International Space Station project. Welcome to the show, Tate. Thank you, Bert. Um, thank you for having me. It's nice. I know you came to see the unveiling of our last um, ISS project, so it's nice to actually be on the show and be yeah, starting you, another um, one. You, you were able to uh, tell us about that, but of course, I think it had already completed and, and yep. it was a little after the after the fact, so we didn't have you come on. But I thought it was really interesting that the Girl Scouts were getting involved with this uh, International Space Station and the project, uh, I guess every year is something a little bit different. Maybe you can describe mm-hmm. what you did last year and what the, the new project is going to be. Sure. So, um, well, actually, before I get into that, I actually wanted to just explain a little bit of the history behind it. So, you know, why is Girl Scouts of Hawaii getting involved in something like this? Mm-hmm. It seems... Well, it is out of this world. Um, so actually, a 2012 um, national re- report from the Girl Scouts of, of America found that 74% of teenage girls are interested in STEM, but only 25% of our STEM professionals are female. So we're kind of wondering, where where is this gap coming from? Um, and they found that there were two main reasons, um, you know, among a few others, why girls weren't choosing to pursue STEM careers. So those two reasons being, number one, STEM was kind of a mystery to them. So either they didn't have any experience with it or they just didn't know that what they were doing actually had to do with STEM. Mm -hmm. And then number two, they didn't know anybody in STEM, so they didn't have anybody who could kind of hold their hand or show them the ropes. So that's where we came in. We were kind of thinking, okay, well, what can we do so that we can give girls this opportunity where they can get hands-on experience and they can start to build those relationships with people, hopefully women, in STEM careers. So that's how we have our International Space Station project. So last year, to answer your question, um, eight high school girls from Oahu came together for about a year and they designed, built, and launched their own science experiment to send to the International Space Station. And so their experiment um, was designed to test the possibility of growing food plants in space. So they used micro arugula mm-hmm. from Nalo Farms and designed their own experiment. They had a camera in there. They had a different, I don't, I'm not a science person. I don't know what it's called, but they had this mechanism um, that would release water every so often. Um, and then the camera, of course, would take pictures of Um, the progress of the project. Um, So that's what they did for their project. And then it was up at the International Space Station for a month, and then it came back. And then that's when you saw them actually get to unveil their project and see how it had progressed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was interesting. I mean, I think the, uh, the goal is really to see whether they could get everything fit into this specific size and you know, given the fact that there's a mechanism for watering and, and timing and, and camera, uh, did they even grow? And there was uh, samples that 
showed the seeds sprouting. Yeah, they were actually. They had at first they looked at it and they said, "Oh, you know, none of our seeds had sprouted." And then they looked a little bit closer and they saw about two of them, I think, had started to grow roots. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. that was pretty exciting. You know, I mean, you think these high school girls are tr- are figuring out how to grow food in space. It's pretty yeah. incredible. So, so what, yeah, what's on tap for this year's project? So this year's project um, will be focused on some sort of aquaponics, sustainable agriculture again, so kind of a continuation of last year. But, you know, the main focus of this project is to have the girls come up with their own design, their own experiment. So those are the big parameters, but as to what they'll do... We're not sure yet. So we're actually just looking for girls right now who are interested in STEM, interested in sustainability, agriculture. You know, we have a whole wide variety of responsibilities. So any any high school girl who's interested in that, yeah, we just, if they want to do this experiment, it does take a little bit of commitment, but I think it's worth it. And these girls can be coming from a variety of different schools. I mean, the first uh, the team that I had met, uh, what, what were some of the schools that they had come from? So I know, I mean, th- some of them came from Iolani. I know there were some from public schools. Mm-hmm. It really, it doesn't matter what school you go to as long as you can come to our weekly meetings. Mm-hmm. And you also don't have to be a Girl Scout, which is kind of neat. So you can, well, you, you must become a Girl Scout before you um, are accepted into the program. But to ap- to apply, you don't have to be a Girl Scout. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So if somebody was interested in that program or perhaps even just tracking the progress of it as it unfolds over the next few uh, months, uh, where can they go for more information? Sure. Um, so they can go to our website. It's girlscouts-hawaii.org. Or you can just do a quick Google search of Girl Scouts ISS, International Space Station, and then our link should pop up there. Great, fantastic! Yeah. It's a fun, fun project, and I hope uh, I get a chance to see the results. Yeah, keep us yeah, posted, yeah, of course. Yeah. Year. So, thanks, T, for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. And that's what's been happening this week. We'll take a short break, and when we return, we'll be char- uh, joined by Charles Littman and Kennedy Wilson to talk about tracking and understanding monk seals. What is a critter cam, and why is it important to understand the monk seals' foraging habits? We'd, of course, love your thoughts, your questions as part of this conversation, so please give us a call at 941-3689, or you can reach us toll-free from the neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. And, of course, we're also monitoring Twitter. You can send us your questions at Bite Marks or at Hawaii. This is Bite Marks Cafe. On the next radio lab, patient zero. Patient zero. Patient zero. Was probably a Bantu man. Patient uh, zero was a man. He kills a chimpanzee. And he cuts himself. From the first HIV infection to the first high five. Given the high five handshake. I had that feeling before everybody else did. That's the moment. That's the moment it begins. Hear Radio Lab Saturday morning at 10. Is there any way to have a civilized, fact based conversation about GMOs? With Hawaii's polarized perceptions, a visiting scientist says it's tough to create dialogue when you have to do it above the shouting. We'll talk with him and hear what Kauai's Gary Hooser has to say tomorrow morning at 8 on The Conversation.
Welcome back to Bite Marks Cafe. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa. And joining us today is Charles Littman and Kennedy Wilson. Charles is uh, works over at the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, and he's a scientist and leader of the Hawaiian Monk Seal Research Program. Kennedy, meanwhile, is a doctoral student at Duke University, and she does research on the behavior, habitat use, and energetics of Hawaiian monk seals in the main Hawaiian islands. And uh, what kind of tech is used to track uh, these monk seals? And, uh, of course, we'd love to hear your questions and comments, and that number to call is 941-3689 on Oahu or one eight seven seven nine four one three six eight nine from the neighbor islands. Charles and Kennedy, we want to welcome you both to Bite Marks Cafe. Thank you very much. It's great to be here, guys. Thanks for having me. So, you know, I want to start off by asking you, Charles, uh, what is it that we sort of know about monk seals? How do we normally characterize? I always thought, you know, monk seals are happy-go-lucky, happy-go-lucky, <laughs> you know, seals that are endangered, and we ought to be kind of protecting them and making sure that, you know, we've kind of given them the uh, space to... to um, um, enjoy the beach just like uh, any you know marine mammal should be able to. So what what is uh what is your sort of uh, perception of how monk seals are being being perceived? Yeah, I think your perception is is pretty spot on to maybe how it should be. But um, I think the thing for to remember is monk seals are really new down here um, in any significant number. So people, are, everyone is kind of going through their own process on trying to understand um, what the new world is, what the new reality with monk seals are. So you have uh, some people that absolutely love them and they can do no wrong. And then you have others um, that are concerned, say, if you're a fisherman, worried about the impacts on your uh, cultural practice or your ability to bring food home to your family or to even make a living. Mm -hmm. So right now, uh, everyone is basically um, struggling to understand and and make use of whatever information is out there to to really, I guess... uh, Make up their minds about are these seals good or bad? So, so you said something about uh, they're new down here, and when you say new, what do you mean by that? I mean, I thought they were always kind of living around the Hawaiian Islands, maybe up in the north, uh, you know, the northwestern Hawaiian Islands more so. But what do you mean by new? Yeah, that's a great question and, and a really important clarification. So, millions of years ago, monk seals were across the entire Hawaiian chain, um, all the way from the southernmost point all the way to the north. Probably a couple thousand years ago, they were wiped out from the main Hawaiian Islands when, when the first human habitants uh, came along. I mean, they would have been an easy source of food and pretty naive. And so they have been living in the Northwest Hawaiian Islands then in, in sort of refuge for mm-hmm. uh, for those 2,000 years. And now because of laws and changes in perceptions and other, they've they've been able to establish a foothold back in the main Hawaiian Islands. So you only really started seeing monk seals in any real numbers in probably the last 15 years. Occasionally you'd see one kind of show up, but you can talk to uh, really old fishermen, 70s, 80s, 90s, mm-hmm. who haven't seen a monk seal until last year or even mm. a couple of weeks ago. So it's even though they, if you look at a scale of millions of years, they've be, always been here. Um, in a couple of decades, it's still new to people. Mm-hmm. Now, Kennedy, your specialist uh, specialization at Duke and now here with this program is monk seals. And <clears throat> building on what Bert said, I mean, I remember as a kid, we traveled to Kauai and there was a monk seal there. And at that time, maybe 10 years ago, it was the highlight of the year that that monk seal uh, turned up on the beach. Now, when I go to the beach, almost uh, probably half the time we might be walking down and there's a space carved out for a monk seal that's relaxing or resting after feeding. So I think more and more people are seeing it in their regular lives. But I can also see how now it's new competition for um, fishermen who are looking for the same thing, you know, tasty fish. Uh, One thing that I read 
was that uh, although the population, they are endangered, and although the population in the Northwest Hawaiian Islands is uh, endangered and, and, you know, they're trying to preserve that, that actually the monk seals that are hanging out with humans are more numerous or actually increasing in number and even more well-fed. Um, how is that? Is, is it because they can catch fish along with our fishermen? That's sort of, that's one of the the main points for my dissertation work is trying to figure out why they are doing so well down here in the main Hawaiian Islands. It's very counterintuitive that right. it seals up in the Northwest. It's a marine national monument. It's been protected for years. There's no fishing up there anymore. And the population is still declining pretty dramatically. But then in the main Hawaiian Islands, there's interactions with fisheries, people on the beaches, they're disturbed, they're um, any levels of toxins that may be in the water just because of pollution or runoff. But the population is actually increasing down in these islands. So we're trying to get to the bottom of what's actually going on. I, no, that's something new because I didn't realize a lot of things that you will probably share with us tonight. But, you know, the idea that the populations are actually reducing in the Northwest Pacific Islands, uh, Hawaiian Islands, because I, I kind of, I don't know, just thought uh, that because of the success of, you know, some of the endangered protection that the monk seal is having, that their populations would grow. They are maybe more populated up in the Northwest, and now they're kind of migrating down because, you know, there's a lot more of them. But that's not, that's not in fact, the case. Uh, no, not not really, and it's, it's a common misperception. So the population in the Northwest is declining uh, roughly, say, 4% per year. Mm-hmm. And that's been going on since probably the 1950s or a little bit later. So a lot of people think that the growth down here is animals moving down. And it was just a few females that moved down here, started the population, and now it's all the population growing here. We are having successes in the Northwest Hawaiian Islands. We do a huge amount of work up there monitoring the population and trying to intervene with animals. So we'll move them to places where they have a better chance of survival. We're, we're um, trying to decrease shark predation and obviously disentanglement or disentangling animals that get mm-hmm. entangled. And so even though the population is still declining, uh, we know because we have such a great data set on the population, we know most animals from the day they were born. And so we know when they've been injured and when they've had pups. We know that up to 30% of the population is alive today because of the interventions that, that our program or uh, our partners have done. Mm-hmm, so, mm-hmm. And that's really huge. So even though the population's going down, uh, it is a substantial contribution to making sure that they stick around. Um, and, mo- and a lot of recovery programs can't boast numbers that high. So have you come to any conclusion why the numbers are decreasing? I mean, is it because of what you just brought up, you know, entanglement and, and shark predation? Yeah, we, I mean, we could have 10 programs to talk about that. But well, we can, you know, this be number one. Yeah, so, <laughs> so uh, there's a whole variety of factors, and there's six main populations in the Northwest, um, different atolls and islands. And what the threats are, the key threats are, kind of vary in between places. But the number one that stretches across all of those places is food limitation. So it seems that young animals are having a terrible, terrible time getting sufficient food. Even though there's incredible biodiversity and, and biomass up there, a lot of it, we think, is one, animals are being outcompeted by jacks and sharks up there, the alua and the sharks that are up there, mm. where you literally see from some of the earlier critter cam work where a seal will be feeding on the bottom, flip over a rock, and you'll have two, four, 20 animals dart in and try to take that thing. And so once you get to three years of age, you're fine. Um, it doesn't matter where you are, you'll live. So 
the threats, be they entanglement, starvation, disease, or whatever, seem to be disproportionately impacting mm. our very young animals. Mm-hmm. We're talking to Charles Littnan of NOAA and Kenny Wilson from Duke University about the Hawaiian monk seal research program. And if you've got a question or thought about these increasingly frequent visitors to our shores, we'd love your call at 941-3689 or from the neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. We're also listening on Twitter at ByteMarks or at Hawaii. Now, uh, Kennedy, tell us about this research program. And uh, uh, Charles did mention Critter Cam, and I know that uh, it's been uh, mentioned elsewhere as well. I mean, I'm just thinking of uh, cameras attached to monk seals that you can tune in during prime time and, and see them living their lives. But more on, on a more scientific basis, what is the Critter Cam project? So what we're doing, it'd be great if we could tune in and just see the streaming footage live. That'd be a dream. Um, but we have to, so we're deploying National Geographic critter cams, but we're also coupling the cameras along with a three-axis accelerometer and then a cell phone tag, which records GPS locations and dive data for the animal. And so with the compilation of all three of those instruments, we're going to be looking at not only where they're going and what they're doing, but we'll get visual confirmation of the types of prey that they're consuming, the prey that they're actually passing up, how much of both they're actually interacting with. In the GPS, we can link to that and get specific locations of where they're actually feeding and foraging. And then the accelerometer will allow us to go in and actually measure energetic demands, so look at the metabolic requirements for monk seals, and eventually we'll incorporate the the prey data that we're getting so we can determine more specifically, how much prey monk seals actually require to survive down here in the main islands, and then we can extrapolate that to the future. And how long has this um, program been going on? I mean, is there already a treasure trove of data that you're digging through, or is it just getting started? We have uh, some diet data uh, from the main Hawaiian islands looking at prey that's been consumed by seals down here. But the actual critter cam footage, most of the past work has been done up in the northwestern Hawaiian islands. So this is the first footage that we've gotten in the main islands. Now, when you say attach them, so you know you, you don't get live video yet. You can't go to monkseal.tv and, and see what's happening. First, so first you need to attach them, and then you need to recover them. Now, I would imagine that perhaps if they're beached, if they're on a beach, it might be relatively straightforward to get that. But what is that process like? Do you actually get out there and chase down these monk seals? Yep. It's usually about four or five scientists and a veterinarian. We go out and We identify animals that are hauled out on the beach, and if they're a candidate uh, for capture, meaning they're not going to molt sometime soon, they're not pregnant, females, um, the right size for the instruments that we're using, um, then we assess sort of the environmental situation and decide if it's safe for us and for the seal to go ahead and capture. And then um, you sneak up on it and (laughs) get it in a net, (laughs) and then we have a veterinarian comes in and they lightly sedate the animal, and then we're able to attach the instruments with um, epoxy. You know, we had uh, we had the uh, well, yeah. I want to ask you about that. You know, we had the Kim Holland come on and talk a little bit about sharks and you know putting uh, various kinds of uh, <laughs> shark cams on on the sharks to study their movement. And and of course, you know, a shark has a fin, so you can strap that camera onto the fin. Now, um, I don't know monk seals. The last time I looked at a monk seal, they don't have a dorsal fin like uh, like a shark does. Where do you strap that camera? And you, you're mentioning epoxy, so where does that epoxy go? So we actually, um, for the cameras, we try to place the, the camera right sort of between the shoulder blades so that while the seal's swimming, we get a good view of the top of the head so we can see what they're doing, if they're going to be flipping over rocks or get, going after prey in the sand. And so we use 10-minute um, epoxy. We just mix it up on the beach and glue it onto the fur. And mm-hmm. so what happens is 
the camera we have it set up so we can actually remove it the camera itself isn't actually epoxied onto the seal but the cell phone tag which is the gps transmitter that's what um, we glue onto the animal and when we move the camera the cell phone tag will stay on so we'll get up to six months worth of um, movement data and gps locations for the animals now charles how large is this device in my head i'm thinking oh maybe it's a surfer's gopro camera or something that's attached but is it a more specialized instrument is it larger is it smaller uh it's definitely larger um it's incredibly small to what it used to be. I mean, it used to be the size of a of a bread box a long time ago. Um, now it's a tube that's probably about eight inches long and one inch in diameter. And uh, it has to be a little bit larger than a GoPro just because it has to withstand depths of up to 1,600 feet. And obviously, battery is always the thing that takes up a lot of space. And so these, these cameras have to last four or five days um, recording this data. So... Um, most of that container is, is housing the batteries. Yeah, so that I was going to ask you that. I mean, how long does this battery last? I mean, and, and if you're saying it's only four or five days, so it's a pretty short kind of period of time that you're capturing video. Yeah, and that's, again, um, the balance that you have to do because these animals are, are designed, you know, they're hydrodyn- hydrodynamic. So if you put something too large, you can start to impact mm-hmm. their ability to forage. Mm-hmm. So we have to balance short deployments and only getting limited data with we would love to be able to see every minute of every day mm-hmm. what they do. And mm-hmm. then you would have all the secrets. Mm-hmm. So right now we record for four or five days, but it will record for a half hour, turn off for an hour and a half, come back on for a half hour, turn off and and, and cycle through. That way we get many snapshots. Um, we get several dives. 30 minute will cover four or five dives. Um, and that way we don't... Uh, Monk seals like to sleep a lot underwater, and so if we recorded it straight through, you could get four or five hours of them sleeping, right, right. and it would be a little bit of a waste of data. Mm-hmm, so. mm-hmm. We're talking to Charles Littnan from NOAA and Kennedy Wilson from Duke University about the Hawaiian monk seal research program and technology like critter cams to gain insights into their behaviors and travels. If you've got a comment or question, you can give us a call at 941-3689 or from the neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. And we have a question from Jason in Mililani about the Critter cams said, uh, are the monk seals aware that they are wired with video? And if so, have they ever tried to punk you? I guess, are they ever, do they ever mess around with you? Uh, that's actually a great question. Uh, so they are, they are aware, obviously. Um, and usually you'll see the animals will be sensitive to it right away when it's put on. Sometimes when they're going to the water, they'll look over their shoulder and they'll see this thing on their back and, and they'll kind of almost like chase their tail like a dog. But uh, ap- shortly after, they're incredibly adaptable, and they just continue on with their regular thing. The way they punk us, and they do punk us, <laughs> is uh, quite often it's easy to find a seal, or relatively easy to find a seal to put a camera on. But when you have to find that exact same seal four or five days later to take the camera off, uh, that becomes the real challenge. And so we've had examples where we've, uh, we've got satellite tags on them as well, so we can kind of real-time track them. We will get on a plane to fly from Oahu to Molokai to grab the animal, we will land. They will immediately leave from shore and go to Lanai. We'll get on a plane and fly to Lanai, and they're back on Molokai. So it is like <laughs> they have a sixth sense mm-hmm. to be able to just to try to one-up us or get back to us or get back at us um, <laughs> for strapping this thing onto them. And I can imagine that uh, getting the camera on them is probably a lot easier because you've already, you know, you captured them and you sedated them. But then capturing them to get the camera Fooling off twice yeah, yeah right. it is going to be and to what i mean to what extent do you try and when do you kind of give up when you to, run out of gas to to recover it <laughs> yeah oh no we we will uh continue until we get the camera off or until it falls off they do go through an annual molt so 
worst case scenario, the top layer of fur and skin comes off and the camera will fall off with it. But, but that could be in the middle of the ocean somewhere, Exactly, right? and, and that's the risk that you run. But we will invest whatever it takes to be able to get the cameras back. And thankfully, we have a network of phenomenal volunteers that makes our jobs a lot easier because they're, they're really doing the hard work of scouring the beaches, and then we kind of, they say the seal's here, and then we rush over and try to get it. So mm-hmm, mm-hmm. in the past, it was a lot harder than it is today mm-hmm. because we have a small army of people looking for us. Now, Kennedy, um, it sounds like you get the, the privilege to be some of the first to review this unique footage from the critter cams. I've, I've seen some excerpts uh, uh, among seal swimming through a reef, which is very picturesque, uh, among seal encountering another monk seal um, and just sort of pointing the camera at that monk seal. Uh, from your reviews, I mean, what are some of your favorite or unexpected moments captured on film? Film from uh, Critter Cam. I think the best one from the most recent deployments was uh, a seal that we tagged just off North Larson's Beach on Kauai. And when he was out on a foraging trip, we have this great footage of a, a mom and calf humpback whale out oh. in the water. And so we got to see him looking at first you see the baby and then the mom whale comes swimming right up next to it. And so that, that was really exciting to see. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, I'm, I'm trying to get an idea of how many cams have you deployed? How much uh, footage have you gotten back as a result of this, and and how many you know let's say hours of of uh, video are you watching? So we we just recovered another three instruments, and we deployed one more today. So not counting those because we haven't looked at that data yet. Mm-hmm. We have about thirty seven hours of video footage that we've already gone through. And this represents how many how many seals? That was eight seals. Okay. And uh, this is primarily all in the main Hawaiian islands? Yep. All, all of that footage came from Kauai and Molokai. Mm-hmm. Have any of these uh, monk seals beached at, you know, I mean, when I see a monk seal, it's like at a White Plains Beach, and it is a crowded beach except for the roped-off area. Do you have footage of, of, of vacationing tourists as well? Not yet. Hmm. We've, been, we've been looking out for that because we're expecting it at some point for them to haul out and have a person in the, in the frame because the camera shuts off when it's dry, but it hmm. takes a couple seconds for the, the switch to realize that it's out of the water. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, I, I, I want to start uh, getting an understanding as to what you are learning as a result of some of this video. Now, maybe, Charles, you can tell us a little bit about what the misperception is. I mean, are, the, are people concerned that the uh, monk seals are threatening some of the fish populations that fishermen are, are you know, let's say used to? And, and are they, uh, is there some repercussion that is occurring because fishermen aren't happy about that? And what, what's happening kind of on the, on the field? Yeah, taking a step back from that just a little bit, because there's mm-hmm. a whole host of misperceptions. Sure, right. um, and we're trying different ways and different tools to, to deal with each of those. Um, so the critter cam is the perfect tool for the fisheries one. And so I don't want to make it sound that all, all we're worried about or, or turn this into a, a fisherman versus seal sort of situation. So, But going to that very specific um, issue about the questions that, that some of the fishermen that we've talked to have had, you see a variety of, of um, opinions or ideas about what monk seals are doing. You know, obviously they just see them leave shore and that's all they know. And so the mind is an incredibly creative thing and, and can um, paint a lot of different imagery. So you have some people that think they eat 600 pounds of fish a day, a single animal. You have some that feel they uh, destroy the coral reefs um, and that they're moving across. Uh, I always use this one, but moving across the bottom of the ocean like a plague of locusts. And so with the cameras, we're hoping that um, we'll be able to shed some light on those. But what we do know with Dwindling fish catch. Um, you know, some of the fish stocks in the main Hawaiian Islands are, are pretty depleted. So people are having a tough go of it. They're not catching as much as they uh, they used to. And there's more f- people fishing than ever. You add a very large marine mammal predator that you're not used to being around. 
that population is growing, you start to see a downside in the economy. You start to see these pressures building up. And so we have had animals that have been intentionally killed, either shot or uh, bludgeoned with rocks and, and, um, and other means. And so I won't put those on fishermen. We don't know necessarily who did it, but we do know that if we don't start answering some of these questions and mm-hmm. dealing with some of these misperceptions, these will probably continue. Mm-hmm. Now, the idea of uh, the... Um well, maybe I'll save that uh, <laughs> save that special question for uh, when we get back. So we'll hold that thought. We'll be right back after this short break to continue our conversation with Charles Littman and Kennedy Wilson about their discoveries in monk seal behavior. How does the data collected on monk seals mesh with other studies in Hawaiian waters, perhaps, such as shark studies? We'd, of course, love to hear from you. You can give us a call at 941-3689 or from the neighbor islands at 877-941-3689. This is Bite Marks Cafe. Next time on Piano Jazz, we remember host Marion McPartland with a special program. For more than 30 years, Marion shared insights through interviews and duets with great musicians. This program, hosted by Marion's longtime friend Murray Horowitz, features her compositions and collaborations with Sarah Vaughn, Karen Allison, Elvis Costello, and more. Don't miss the next Piano Jazz from NPR Music. Saturday at 3 p.m., following the Moth Radio Hour. Sister Robika Hakalau returns to HPR's Atherton Studio on Saturday, August 24th at 7.30 p.m. This intimate evening features songs from her long-awaited album, Roby Calling. She'll be showcasing brand-new Hawaiian songs as well as her classics featuring her guest, falsetto singer Mark Yamanaka. For reservations, visit hawaiipublicradio.org or call 955-8821 during business hours. Welcome back. This is Bite Marks Cafe. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa, and we're talking to Charles Littnan and Kennedy Wilson about monk seals and critter cams. And how can the public help to better protect the monk seal? Of course, you can give us a call. The number here is 941-3689 on Oahu or 1-877-941-3689 from the neighbor islands. And right before the break, I was ready to ask my all-important question. And uh, the question is, Charles, you know, when you said that the there were some perceptions of the seals sort of wiping out the reef and and like a like a plague of locusts where does that come from i never i never had that idea or or that perception of course i'm not a you know i'm not hardcore like fisherman but where does that come from um i think it comes from a couple different places i think you do have some people that are just intentionally um riling up fear and 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 because of concerns of more regulations coming in or other things so uh, turn it against the monk seal and keep monk seals out of here and everything will be fine, status quo. Um, but if you look at it from the other way, they're coming up with conclusions that seem pretty reasonable based on the information that you have. So everybody's a scientist, right? You make observations, you come up with an idea of how things work. So you have a really, really fat seal that seemingly doesn't do anything except sleep on the beach or go into water and usually swim around your fishing pole or near shore. They don't have the luxury of critter cams, satellite tags, dive recorders, all of those things. And so they are basically making some pretty logical steps, thinking that if you are that big, I mean, just think about how much fish you would have to be um, or you'd have to eat in order to get to 400, 500, 600 pounds. Mm-hmm. Um, monk seals are just incredibly efficient, I think. And so I, I think it's it's not right, but it's it's a logical train of assumptions mm-hmm. that people are making. But I do think that there are several people out there that are intentionally perpetuating bad, scary information. 
Now, um, Kennedy, you're looking at this data. You're trying to learn about their movements. That's something that we covered in a new section about uh, shark studies and trying to figure out where they're going. Um, we did talk briefly about the different populations when you're talking about the Northwest Hawaiian Islands versus the main Hawaiian Islands, the populated Hawaiian Islands. One thing that, that jumped into my mind is from your data, are you finding out that they're essentially one population or that are they are they discrete groups that you sort of have the main Hawaiian Island monk seals that just sort of like hanging out with people and a different population in the Northwest Hawaiian Islands? So we haven't put cell phone tags up on seals in the Northwest. Mm-hmm. Um, and the data that we've seen, Northwest seals tend to stay up there, but they're the ones that ended up coming down to the main <laughs> islands and starting this population down here. So there are certain individuals that do travel mm-hmm. farther and wider than the rest. So some animals, it's they're very individualistic in their behaviors. Even in the main islands, we have some seals, it doesn't matter, male, female, adult, or juvenile. They will travel to every single island and back all within a couple months. And other animals don't leave Oahu at all, ever. And none um, of your critter cams have gone up to the Northwest Hawaiian no, Islands. Right? No. You know, we're talking to um, uh, Kennedy Wilson from Duke University and Charles Litton from NOAA, and we're talking about monk seals and the critter cams that are that are uh, strapped on and, and uh, telling us a little bit of story of what exactly the monk seals are doing. And uh, if you have any comments or questions, feel free to give us a call. Number is 941-3689. Or from the neighbor islands at one eight seven seven nine four one three six eight nine. Now, Charles, you know when you start to look at the da- uh, the data, the look at the video, look at the, maybe some characteristics that uh, might reveal themselves. I mean, what what can you conclude? And obviously, monk seals are eating fish. Uh, that's not gonna you can't you know dispel that sort of uh, conclusion. Uh, will you are or are you finding things that will perhaps? Uh, quell the fears of fishermen that might be thinking that, you know, these uh, monk seals are really damaging their their fish stock? Yeah. So we're, again, we're only one year into a three-year study, but I think even with these cameras that we've put out and recovered already and the footage that we've seen, those major misconceptions can already be blown out of the water. Um, Mm -hmm. So there's an amazing... Um, this isn't maybe the most uh, exciting aspect of, of the footage, but there's an amazing amount of footage of them doing nothing underwater, mm-hmm. which is really the most important stuff. So we see them passing up. Uh, I think Kennedy's number that she provided uh, to me recently was 300 fish, uh, passing up 300 fish for every one that they ate. So there's some selectivity. Mm-hmm. You know, They do a lot of sleeping underwater. Um, frustratingly for us, when we're trying to get foraging data and they're nestled under a crevice and doing nothing. Um, <laughs> but then there's also a lot of just socializing and just traveling. And so those sorts of things, helping people understand um, that there's just this whole spectrum of behaviors that have nothing to do with feeding that are happening under there um, is probably the most important stuff. All of the boring stuff is the things that ultimately might change ideas and save the seal. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, one question that comes to mind when you mentioned sleeping underwater, I mean, uh, uh, Kennedy, how long can you hold your breath to be able to get a good amount of sleep underwater? As a seal? Yeah. We have, so we have the the cameras record for 30 minutes at a time, and there are, seals can hold their, monk seals can hold their breath for about 10 to 20 minutes longer than that um, while they're resting underwater. And so we get an entire clip of just the animal swimming down, wedging itself into a little ledge, sleeping the entire time, and then it'll slowly go back to the That's surface, take a few breaths, and then go immediately go right back down. So they're kind of, um, they're not really sleep, 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 sleep swimming or anything. They're just 
uh, needing some air, they go up, and they're still sort of in this sort of sleep mode. Exactly. Uh-huh. Um, it's it. In fact, we've called it sleep swimming before. Oh. And you have to be aware. We have some animals in the Northwest Hawaiian Islands that this is, you know, they like to sleep in some of our boat channels. And our field researchers have to be careful because these animals will surface, and they are in that sort of daze. They're mm-hmm. in that stupor. And so you need to make sure you're not driving over right when they come to the surface. And so and they'll do that for hours and hours and hours. Now, uh, what's to prevent, uh, let's say, you come up with your uh, conclusions about their behavior or their habits, and the opposition says, well, you know, you guys are going to obviously taint that solution or that uh, observation because that's what you want everybody to believe. And there are probably some... I don't know, they might say, like, there's some footage out there that you probably haven't shown us that indicates that they are, you know, predatory, you know, or predators uh, in our, in our, uh, of our fish. Uh, what, what, what can you say about that? That is, a, I'm so glad you asked that question. So part of this study, when, when Kennedy and I and others were developing this, was trying to deal with those exact things. So destroy the model of how research is normally done and really try to make it heavily engaged with the community so one of the things that we do, um, and this was uh, an idea that was suggested by uh, Walter Ritty on, on Molokai, mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. when we collect our data, uh, send it bef- before we look at it, send it to school kids. Um, so we work with different schools on different islands and let them go through and analyze it all. And they don't, it's not super scientific analyzing. It's basically inventorying the things that they see. And that way, obviously, we have to condense all of that footage down to, you know, 37 or in the end, it's going to be hundreds of hours of footage down to the most interesting 12 minutes. So it's going to be very easy when I show that at a public meeting for someone to say, you're only showing us the stuff that's favorable for SEALs. Then we'll have those students that will be able to stand up and say, no, uncle, Mm -hmm. we watch this and this is this is the important stuff. This is the good stuff. So we have thought long and hard about how we can make this as transparent as possible and uh, and try to I guess short circuit those mm-hmm. the naysayers. And I also think that that's uh, that's certainly an approach near and dear to Bert and my heart in terms of making the data available, making it public and open, so other people can can do it. In fact, uh, Kennedy, uh, is there a plan or is there an ability that if somebody uh, wanted to review the data themselves and make their own heat map of monk seal travels or a three D visualization of something, would would that come to uh, to be available after the research project is complete? Most likely, yes. I know we have plans to make the, the GPS locations and the movement data. That will likely be available. Mm-hmm. I'm not entirely sure about the, the National Geographic footage. Right, and of course, video is uh, much more data intensive in terms right. of just, you know hosting it and serving it up mm-hmm. as well. Uh, we want to welcome Carol from Kailua to Bite Marsh Cafe. Welcome to the show. Thank you. And do you have a question for our guests here? I do. The question is, I have read um, speculation that increased um, uh, seal populations can attract sharks. And I wondered if you folks have any data on that. That's a great question. I'm glad you asked that. Thanks. Thank you for that question. Uh, and it's, and it, is a, it is a tough one, um, particularly uh, and a, probably a very timely one with, with what's going on with tiger sharks in the in the main Hawaiian Islands right now. Um, there are places in the world that do have uh, populations. Uh, it's South Africa that has hundreds of thousands of fur seals, California that has uh, 100,000 plus elephant seals, where you do see pretty dense populations of uh, great whites in, in California and, and actually great whites in, in South Africa as well. 
Um, and that is tightly linked with a huge biomass of, of, of seals. You know, that there is a, a whole seasonality and, and a whole behavior uh, around preying on those monk seals. Um, I don't think that, and a lot of researchers that I talk to don't think that monk seals are a driver for increasing shark populations, um, certainly not down in the main Hawaiian Islands, because there's just not enough biomass and they've been here too short uh, of a time to really attract it. You know, some people will talk about turtles, which are a much higher biomass, or just the fact that sh- sharks down here haven't been hunted in decades now, you know, mm-hmm. after a very extensive uh, shark culling program. So it's very hard for me to to believe that um, while large populations, enormous populations of seals can attract that sort of behavior, 200 sharks or 200 seals spread across the main Hawaiian Islands is just not that much of a motivation or an attractant for, for sharks. And it's certainly not much of a, a very good food resource or a constant food resource for, for sharks. So uh, I think it's an understandable uh, conclusion that a lot of people reach, but uh, I don't think it's it's I don't think it's a driver for what we're seeing right now. Thanks very much for your call. And I do think agree it was timely. We talked about the study of shark movements. So, in fact, one of the things that I think we could see is if we had Kennedy's map and we had the tiger shark map, we could see if, you know, how they much they overlap. Do they spend a lot of time in the same places? But I think that with monk seals and with humans, for that matter, sharks see either of them as targets of opportunity and not something that they've been able to evolve to rely upon as a food source. So, um, Kennedy, you said that uh, you just recovered some. You put some more out there. Um, where, where in this research project are you? Is, it, uh, is, there, is there any specific segregation between data collection and analysis, or is everything happening at the same time? A little bit of both. Mm-hmm. So there is some segregation because we are still collecting data. We're hoping to get, um, we'll probably deploy more throughout this year and into the winter. And then hopefully that'll be it for my portion of the project. I think the CritterCam project itself is going to continue on after that. Um, but we are starting to already go through the GPS locations, the movement data, looking at foraging trips and dive data itself. But we haven't yet started looking at the energetics or using the accelerometer data yet. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, it's it's interesting. And, and Carol, you know, brought up, brought up a good point. And, of course, the, the uh, mainstream media has been covering quite a bit of uh, activity with sharks. And you're doing a lot of uh, sort of monitoring of, of seals. Do you, see, do you see that technology being applicable for monitoring what the activity of sharks are? I mean, I know there's a study, we just reported on that, uh, where, where DLNR is uh, looking to spend some money on, on uh, getting UH to look at some of the shark activity. Do you see some of the technology that you're using um, applicable in that arena? Um, absolutely. Um, and and there's even better tools, actually, for, for sharks. Mm. Um, mainly, you don't need to, I think, um, follow them with cameras. And, and obviously, trying to find them and recover them is even harder than it is with monk seals. But the simple sonic tagging stuff that they do, with all the, particularly with the array of buoys that they have around the main Hawaiian Islands, would do a lot to be able to, uh, to really get fine details about shark movements. And because I think one thing people don't understand or even getting out and being able to just census them and to really get an understanding of how many sharks there are. I think most people don't understand if you, if you go up to a, maybe this might not be good for tourism, but you go up (laughs) to a hotel in Waikiki and you look down at the beach. If you just watch for an hour, you will see several sharks, not necessarily tiger sharks or anything dangerous swim through crowds of people and everyone is completely oblivious. So um, they're, they're, they're there. um, And, and we've been living quite happily with them for a very long time. So um, I think, yeah. And, but getting back to technology, they're, 
the trackers, any sort of tracker, but particularly the sonic tags are going to be the best way to go. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, Kennedy mentioned, you know, her project, her involvement in a project has an end date for her own studies. Uh, this is a three-year study, specifically this uh, and with the National Geographic Partnership. But, Charles, um, for the historical perspective, I mean, our study and research into monk seals isn't necessarily going to end with this. So, um do you see this to be an ongoing field, an ongoing specific focus with this specific species uh, indefinitely into the future? Absolutely. So it's always evolving. So the, we're, we're a recovery program. We're a recovery research program. So everything that we do is intended to try to figure out a way to help these animals survive. So whether it's getting rid of misinformation or develop vaccines and a vaccination plan to stem off a major outbreak um, or learning how to modify behavior for seals as they learn to live with people and start acting badly uh, and, and getting too friendly with people. So I don't know if our work is ever going to end mm-hmm. as, as we continue to move to the next phase of, of monk seal population. So there's a lot left to do. If somebody wanted to uh, learn more about uh, the monk seal research project, maybe even see some footage at some point, I mean, is there a, a website that they should go to? Yeah, the easiest one, the simplest URL would be just to go to our Facebook page, and you don't have to be a, a Facebook member in order to see the page. So it's just facebook.com forward slash HMSRP. Mm-hmm. If you're interested in National Geographic Critter Cam footage, just Google Critter Cam Monk Seals, and there's a lot of stuff out there already. And as far as your data, uh, is is your data available somewhere so people could, you know, maybe take a look at some of the... Make an app. Make an app or sell, you know, like a, the cell tags and, and see where they're, you know, moving around and... I, well, we can talk after the show. We'd like to see if we can maybe make that available. Okay. We yeah. can talk about it. And uh, uh, Kennedy, I mean, where can people find out more about your work? Uh, I do have my own website. It's sites.duke.edu slash Kennedy Wilson. And we have a research blog going there go- documenting when we deploy cameras, the data that's oh, happening great. and things like that, things going on in our lab. We'll cool. try to link to that in our show notes at yeah, sure bitemarkscafe.org. Yeah. And uh, we'll, we'll get it up on our show notes. I'm looking it up right now. Yeah. Well, good. <laughs> Send it to me. Well, we want to thank you both. Uh, Charles Littman. Littman is a lead and the, uh, leads the Monk Seal Research Program over at uh, NOAA. And Kennedy Wilson is a researcher over at Duke University. And we want to thank you both for joining us today. Thank you guys very much. It was fantastic. Yeah, thanks for having us. And thank you for listening to Bite Marks Cafe. Join us next week when we'll find out about the DOE's Common Core program. And if you miss any part of this edition, you can find the podcast of tonight's show on BiteMarksCafe.org. And if you have any comments or suggestions, email us at feedback at BiteMarksCafe.org. Or, of course, you can also find us on Twitter. I'm at BiteMarks. And you can follow me at Hawaii. Our engineer is David Chung, and our executive producer is Beth Ann Koslovich. And we leave you with our song pick of the week. Here's a Seattle band called Sibling Rivalry and a song called Secret Jesus. See you next week on another edition of Bite Marks Cafe.